Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode 19 of Data Slate, the book review show where we cater to the discerning spacefarer, fantasy adventurer, or ghost hunter who is prepared to put their feet up and tuck into a story or two while exploring the galaxy, a haunted house, or a dragon's lair. I'm your host, Alan Stroud, and on this episode, we'll be talking about the latest news in science fiction, fantasy, and horror before moving on to our selected reading recommendations. Joining me for this episode is Shona Kinsella, author of recently published novella The Flame and the Flood, published by Fox Spirit Books, and other fantasy novels and short stories such as Ashiel Rising and Petra MacDonald. She's also the editor of BFS Horizons, the biannual fiction anthology published by the British Fantasy Society, and I believe of which is closing for submissions very soon. Isn't that right, Shona? Yes, that's right. We're closing to submissions from the 1st of November. Because things are just so popular and they have had so many. So quite clearly, they are getting quite a lot of excellent stuff in. And also joining me on this episode is Kevin Elliott from Where's My Flippin' Tea and author of science fiction novel Lightmaker. Hi, Kevin. Hi there, Adam. Good to hear from you again. Okay, Shona, so what have you been up to? So, as you mentioned, I recently released or had released The Flame and the Flood with Fox Spirit, so I've been doing work promoting that and working on the sequel to Ashiel Rising, which is called Ashiel Falling and will be out early next year, so I'm in edits and cover design and all that fun stuff, getting ready for that to come out. Yeah, it's very interesting in that you kind of, I'm quite jealous because I've always wanted to be published by Fox Spirit. I think Fox Spirit have such an excellent catalogue of stuff and I've always been impressed by everything I've read of theirs. And there, the cover for The Flame and the Flood does look beautiful. You really, oh, it just, you know, I, I really do like it. I think it looks great. Yeah, I did a happy dance when I saw the cover design for the first time. <laughs> I can imagine. And, and I am going to make this public and, and make it clear so that you know, Karen currently has an Amazon voucher. And when we were talking earlier today about the fact that you were coming on to do a podcast, she said, oh yeah, I, I was going to get a load of her stuff. So now I've said it, She's going to do that. She has a birthday Amazon voucher, so she better hurry up and get on with that in terms of what she's uh, what she's reading. Hi, Kev. How's things been with you? What have you been up to this week? Not too bad. I've been keeping on working with my novel, the sequel to Lightmaker. Provisional title is um, Cradle of the Mind, and I'll, I'll dig out a prize for someone who works out the uh, classical illusion there. I've done a lot of work in plotting out the novel. I've used two writing books, Libby Hawker's wonderfully named Take Off Your Pants and John Truby's Anatomy of Story to come up with what I think is a fairly decent plan for the second novel. I wrote the first novel by the seat of my pants. It took me five years, so I want to try and get this one done a little bit more quickly. So it's going well at the moment, so I need to rewrite everything, but uh, that's inevitable, but I am making progress. And I've done more reading, um, I started Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Ruin, that's the sequel to Children of Time. About a quarter way through, really enjoying it at the moment, and uh, hopefully talk about that in a future data slate. Sounds good. Yeah, Adrian's Children of Ruin, it'd be great to have a discussion on that. But we are going to talk about one of Adrian's books later on, I think, and possibly we'll get into a little bit of that as uh, as we go. But first up, we've got our discussion topic, which for this week, we're going to be looking and talking a little bit about awards, about nominations and ceremonies. And the reason for doing that is we've got a little bit of information that is recent, is new. The nominations list for the British Fantasy Awards has been released. And this gives us an idea of the runners and riders for the variety of categories. Now, there's a lot of awards for the British Fantasy Society. The awards list that they have is, is quite numerous. And I have a little bit of past knowledge of how some of this works. I think, Shona, it's, it's put together, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's voted for to begin with, isn't it? And then it goes to judging panels. Then we find out, obviously, the winner from the judging panel as to, to which wins in each category. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So it's voted on by the membership of the British Fantasy Society and members from the previous year's FantasyCon and the upcoming FantasyCon to get the shortlist. So the top four books or artists in each category go forward to be judged by a group of jurors and they choose the winner. 
And occasionally the judging panels will choose to add something. So they do, you know, at their discretion. And we never know which ones were added and which ones were, were popular choices. So that's absolutely fine. That's exactly how it should be. But if they think that something is worthy of consideration, then if they have an agreement across the panel, then they can add it to what's there. It does make for an interesting kind of mix, really, in that every award system is obviously is working on a slightly different you know sort of set of mechanics in that it's the balance between vote and discerning choice and obviously we we're, we're all three of us aware of what happened with the hugo some years ago with the different ways in which people tried to influence the ballot and so on and so forth and no award and and all the rest of that i've always found the british fantasy societies method of managing this quite robust really in terms of how they do it i certainly think that it is quite robust if you have just the popular vote then you run the risk of people winning just because they have lots of friends among the voters rather than because their work is particularly outstanding but obviously the judiciary system balances that out and gives us a more objective end result hopefully and you've got as well you've got almost a balance of two camps in that you've got fantasy con attendees as mentioned and you've got british fantasy society members now you know there there are a lot of people who are both i'm both i'm sure that you are too shona i expect kev is the same in that uh, we've all attended the events and i've all had membership at different times but because you're coming from two communities it is a case of that you know you'll have perhaps some from some and some from the other and then you've got the jurors to kind of sit in the middle in terms of how they put it together. Are there any of the categories and the runners and riders that stand out to you, Shona? Oh, there's so many kids. <laughs> there's so many skillful writers that I think are on the short lists this year. I think the collections category is looking particularly good. This House of Wounds by Georgina Bruce is just beautifully written. <laughs> Georgina's got a real way with words. And as does Laura in Laura Morrow. It's always interesting as well in that of course, with the fact that the BFAs have such a long list of categories, it's as to whether people are familiar with everything that's in each one. We're not going to read them out here, but we will post the, the categories list with the episode so people will get a, a chance to, to take a look uh, in terms of what's there. But yes, there are you know there are a vast array of categories. You've got anthology, artist, audio, collection, comic, fantasy novel, Film and TV, horror novel, indie press, magazine, newcomer, non-fiction, novella, and short story. Newcomer I, always makes me smile because I always think I, I'm a newcomer and I'm not. The way in which that kind of runs through in terms of how you're factored as a newcomer I think is very interesting. Looking at that, I mean, the standout for me in terms of that I've heard of it and it's on my shelf and hasn't yet been read is Gideon the Ninth. Um, because lots of people have talked about Gideon the Ninth, but I am absolutely sure that there are, you know, an array of of other wonderful books within within what's there. Magazine is always, you know, you see a lot of similar names: Ginger Nuts of Horror, Black Static, Shoreline of Infinity, FNSF. But then we've got Fire, and uh, I, I probably I'm I'm missing the Dark. I probably just haven't heard of them before, but. Um, Interesting to see, you know, sort of a couple of new names in, in terms of what's there. And then just scrolling up, Indie Press, Black Shuck, a fairly well-known, Luna Publishing, and now fairly well-known, or Luna Press, actually fairly well-known, Newcom Press, well-known, Undertow have won it a few times, Rebellion are well-known, Aqueduct Press I've not heard of, so interesting. So, yeah, so it, it's one of those things that these lists kind of change, but they stay the same in some ways. You know, you go back and you see sort of familiar faces, familiar names, but you also see new faces and new names uh, emerging as it goes through. And my observation of the familiar ones is that they're clearly doing excellent work over a number of years, which is, you know, is fabulous. Kev, was there anything that stood out to you? Uh, I've got to confess, I haven't read most of what's on the list. One thing I do know, Vince Haig, the artist, uh, he actually did the front cover of my novel, which uh, I thought was wonderful. And uh, I directed a couple of plays a few years ago, and he did the covers for those. So uh, I have been rushed off my feet. I'm doing a full-time job at the moment, and uh, the novel and everything, I'm really short of time. So uh, I've got to stick my hand up and say I'm the naughty boy that hasn't read 
most of what's on the list. I think actually that's fairly normal in that it is quite an extensive list. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be able to get round to all of this in terms of what's there. But at the same time, what it also highlights for you is that, oh, look, there's a load of lovely stuff. Look at these different things. Oh, I've not heard of that one. Oh, has he got another book out? Oh, has she got another book out? Oh, I'm interested in, you know, that certainly for me is is one of the, the things that, that sort of helps with a list like this. I have The Woods by Phil Sloman. That is, I think, is up on a shelf. Incidentally, I've put up 22 shelves since April to house most of my books. I still have another six boxes of books that I've got to find homes for. But Phil has certainly has got a place on my shelf and, and it will be something I'll take a look at. That's in the anthologies. The Poison Song, well, Karen reads everything that Jen Williams writes, so, you know, she'll love that. The Bone Ships, I was there when RJ Barker previewed that at a Comic-Con, actually, at a London Comic-Con. And I was there at a blogger's brunch listening to the slightly different take that he was giving on his stuff to do with that. As usual, the horror novel list is strong, very strong. Adam Neville versus Stephen King versus Alison Littlewood versus Helen Marshall versus T. Kingfisher versus James Brogdon. That's a tough list. You would think really any one of those is a contender to win. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and often similarly with the magazine, the publisher lists, those are always ones that are, are strong. I do find that some of the categories are, are quite diverse. This isn't a suggestion that the British Fantasy Society should have more categories because they've got lots of categories. But things like the non-fiction list, it's a lot of very, very, very different pieces of writing in a lot of very, very different areas. So some of them are kind of comparable. Some of them be very difficult to compare them in terms of, of what's there. I mean, you can see that some of the books that are in that list are kind of biographical or a, or a critical and, and examining stuff. And then comparing those to blogs is quite tricky. So interesting choices for the judges in terms of what they're doing. And audio always the same, you know, because you've got, is it a podcast you're looking at or is it an audio drama you're looking at? They're very different beasts. They are. You've got Pseudopod and Podcastle are both fiction Speculative Spaces is a discussion podcast that usually has authors on as guests. Yeah, and, and the same with Breaking the Glass Slipper is, you know, is the same in that, you know, it's a discussion show. So it's it's a very tricky one. And obviously last year's winner. It's a very tricky one to kind of compare those those things. And then when we get down towards the end, there's a, a list of again, still stellar names. You know, you've got Priya Sharma, you've got Gareth Powell, you've got Tade Thompson, all in the novella category. And those pieces we've seen in other awards lists as well. The Deep has been talked about a lot. I've got The Deep here. I haven't read it yet, but uh, by River Solomon. Uh, I've not heard of The Butcher's Table and I've not heard of The Ascent to Godhood. But, um, you know, if they've been put on the list, then clearly they are um, things that people have, have definitely rated. And then the shorts. Interesting. You've got Rob Sherman versus Laura Moreau, which are obviously two big names. Penny Jones, I know, is, is obviously is a, uh, a great writer. I've not heard of Julie Travis, so that's probably my bad in that I've not heard of her before. But uh, again, you know, difficult to judge between, I'm sure, a variety of different stories and, and different bits and pieces. Yeah, again, it's another strong category, I think. So those judges are going to have a hard job. <laughs> yeah, and, and having been a judge for the awards, it is quite an interesting discussion. You do go through and you kind of think through what you rate and what you don't rate. And I freely admit, I was a judge one year and we went through the four and I put a list together and sent my list round to other people. And someone replied back with exactly the opposite to my list. They had listed them in entirely the reverse order. And then we had the discussion and, you know, and I gradually, I just, you know, looked at what they were saying and went, yeah, you know what, you're right. You know, absolutely, you're right. And and I missed that and I didn't see that and I didn't realise that. And, you know, so I've always felt that, that some of those things are about pointing out what's good and what's allowing you to rate something. But at the same time, then being prepared to admit you're wrong and backtrack if you, you need to. So it's a, it's a tricky thing, you know, really, really tricky thing to manage to, you know, to, to do the judging. I, I'm pretty sure, Shona, you've done this before in terms of judging on any of these. I have. I've done three years 
on panels for the last three years. There was one year where my favourite book from the, the category, it was very fast paced and just a great story. And I thought it was brilliant. And one of the other jurors pointed out several factual errors that were in the book, which spoils it for them. And because I didn't know they were errors, they didn't, I hadn't noticed them. So they didn't spoil it for me. But as soon as you realise that there's lots of them there, then you have to say, well, that's not the winner then. You know, for all its great pacing and things, those are things that should maybe have been picked up <laughs> before. Yeah, I mean, I, I did one year where there was, in the discussions, it was quite clear that there was one piece that everybody rated as being not as good as all the others. And that was an interesting year. And it was, you know, you did, you're very glad at that point that the whole process of it is quite discreet. You know, all of the all of the people who'd agreed to be jurors and uh, and agreed to work on it were absolutely, we're not going to talk about, you know, who this or who that or anything else uh, in terms of what was there. Um, and were very discreet in terms of, of saying that, you know, of keeping their commentary to what they were doing. And that was that was good, you know, because you want that. You don't want to, you would never want any of these processes to inhibit anyone's creativity. Because one of the reasons why we've got so many categories and so much lovely stuff is because so much stuff is being done, which I think is massively important to the way in which genre fiction works in, in the UK. You know, we're, we're very lucky in that way saying that I came across a cat, I don't know who said it, but it's talking about coming into things when you don't know. I think the most honest thing you can say is, I don't know, and uh, just be ready to learn and, and so on. One of the great things about this sort of parade of wonderful science fiction that we can dip into is it's a great reservoir for ideas, and the, the heart of having ideas is to admit you don't currently know and are willing to let yourself be educated. Yeah, very much so. And I think as well that we perhaps, we of us that, that are sort of familiar with maybe reading books from, from different authors and different writers, we perhaps don't necessarily recognize at times just how often when we talk about these lists, when we talk about these different writers, often a lot of the people who are reading fantasy, reading horror, reading, reading science fiction, they have not heard of an awful lot of the writers who are out there. I remember being a, a callow youth. Yes, once I was a callow youth and sticking to my territory. You know, I liked this author, so I found everything that that author did. I liked this author, so I found everything that that author did. I wasn't particularly eclectic. I wasn't particularly diverse in my reading. And actually by starting to review things or getting involved in being a juror for some of these different things, it really does open you up. It really does make you kind of see stuff and, and get involved and kind of see a lot of different writing. And that can kind of help you as a writer too. All right, so that's the British Fantasy Awards list. We'll be publishing that with the episode. So you'll be able to look through and see all the different categories and all the different nominations. Good luck to all the people that have been nominated and hopefully we'll be seeing the results soon. Now, I know that this year there isn't a fantasy con. So, Shona, how are the results going to be announced? I believe that Catherine, who is our awards coordinator, is looking into doing a sort of virtual awards ceremony. Um, probably something quite similar to what you did yourself for the British Science Fiction Association. Well, it, to be fair, she's got her work cut out for her here in that um, I was very, very fortunate, as as many people know, this year's British Science Fiction Awards were broadcast from my spare room. But I was very fortunate in that we only do four categories. So cutting together a video from the, the awards stand next to me, a camera in front of me, microphone all set up, and then me talking through everything in my best possible waistcoat and tie wasn't too bad. It was when I then went back and realized that, you know, something in the audio wasn't right and I had to run back upstairs sit in my jogging suit pants and my waistcoat and my tie and my shirt and add a little line in and then go back downstairs thankfully I'd, I'd left the camera in exactly the same position so it, it was seamless nobody would know but um yeah we were very fortunate we only had four categories so we were able to contact the winners ahead of time and they were able to provide short video pieces 
which we could then insert into to what was there. And that was great. But even, even with all that, and even with my recording and editing knowledge, because you know, I've taught film for some years, so my video editing is fairly good. Even with all that, I was due to release that all sort of early a Sunday evening. And I didn't realize how long it was going to take for the, the video file to export and to upload. And it took hours. It took absolutely hours. And I don't think we got it out until about 11.30 that night because it took so long to get the, the thing off of the editor into a file and then upload it to YouTube and get permission from YouTube for it to be on. Unless you've verified your account, it can only be a certain length. So you had to have your account verified. And I hadn't done that and all these kind of rookie errors. So by the end of it, I was I was a I was a kind of stressed puddle on the floor, even though it was probably the easiest way we could manage it. It still put a lot of onus on me. So yeah, if Kat is trying to do that, I think there's quite a lot here and it could be quite tricky. So I hopefully she'll get some help and get, you know, quite a few different people to do perhaps different sections. That's probably the, the easiest way to assemble it all together. Yeah, well, I'll certainly um, be available to help her if she needs and I'm sure the rest of the committee will as well. But uh, maybe we'll speak to you in more detail beforehand to get any tips. I, I'm sure you've got it in hand. I'm sure it's all fine and I'm sure it will go fantastically. But yeah, no, it, it was a, a tall order and hats off to anybody that tries to put these things together. They can be quite hard. Okay, so we'll move on from there and we'll come back in just a minute with our book choices. But before that, here are some adverts. He was a space pirate with quirky habits. Hi, most people find me quirky. I don't eat in front of people. She was a busy space liner captain with no time for love. I've got 50 passengers to take on a space whale watching tour. I don't have time for dating. But when fate throws them together, the result is pretty inevitable. You're like no man I've ever met. Forget my job, ship and crew. Where should we go for a date? It better not be a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> From Sydney and Dreams Entertainments comes a new total immersion experience. It was incredible. I just put on the headset and it's like I was there, in the story. Using Signy and Dreams' patented Dreamware Immersion headsets, you'll feel the love. It was like I could feel everything that plucky ship captain was feeling. You'll feel the passion. Let's just say, when they got off, I got off. You'll feel everything. Did you enjoy your meal? Ooh. I don't think I should have had that raw seafood. <laughs> <laughs> Signy and Dream Entertainments and Dreamware headsets, bringing you closer to the adventure. Signy and Dream Entertainments is a division of Signy and Dream Military Educational Software. Combat training software also available. Please be aware that improper use of the Dreamware headset may lead to psychosis, time loss, memory impairment, and hallucination. Want to tour the frontier? Travel with Colmac Reeve and our new fleet of passenger Starliners. We've opened up the universe for a range of budgets. Option one, luxury. My husband and I like to travel in comfort. The new luxury cabins were like a home away from home. After all, one's home is a castle. Option two, first class. We'd saved up a bit for a really special trip. The first class cabins were like nothing we've traveled in before. Really luxurious. Option three, travel cabin. We won a trip with Cormac Reeves' monthly lotto. A travel cabin for two on a Starliner around the solar system. Once in a lifetime for us, simply amazing. Option four, basic accommodation. Me and my mates just wanted to hitch around the universe. It's so great that we have the option of getting a really cheap cabin to see the sights. It saved us loads. And for the budget conscious and slaves, we have our cheapest option yet. Well, I needed a... And we won't sell any of those frozen passengers into slavery. I promise. Colmac Reeves All Budget Tours. Seeing the galaxy from luxury to freezing tubes. Okay, and welcome back. Right, so first book choice of the evening. Shona, what have you been reading recently? I recently read and really enjoyed Cage of Souls by Adrian Tchaikovsky. So Adrian is one of my favourite authors 
working just now. And every book he writes is so different from the others. <laughs> He's so skilled, such a variety of work he puts out. And I would love to be able to write as fast as him. <laughs> I've got to say, that point is one of the most incredible things. And he's quite dissembling about it as well. I've asked him a few times, how on earth do you keep up with all this? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I had them in draft and, you know, now it's harder and I'm I'm going to slow down. And you're like, he, he never does. He seems to just churn it out. He does. I saw a post that his wife, Annie, had put up on Facebook, I think, at one point. And it was a picture of Adriana at his computer. And she said, you know, this is 10 o'clock at night. This is how he does it. <laughs> and he says that, oh, well, I don't really know what this is. This is it. He works every night. And typing away, he's always so um, dedicated to his work. Yeah, he does. I mean, I don't know about you. And, you know, obviously, we're in a conversation here between three writers. I don't know about you, but I do find I write better when I'm a little bit tired because I stop censoring myself and I just let it flow. I don't try and edit it in my head. And maybe there's a little bit of that. You know, I'm I'm speculating here. But yes, I think I saw the same post from Annie where she basically said that she's gone to sleep night after night to the sound of tapity tap tap as Adrian continues to write the next chapter that he's working on. So clearly it works for him. And I know he's you know, he's full-time writer now. So he's, you know, and I mean, kind of should be in that, you know, he's been incredibly successful over the last few years. What did you find about Cage of Souls then? Okay, so Cage of Souls stands alone. So it is not attached to any of his other series. And the first thing that struck me about it was just the really lush descriptions. You know, I really felt like I was in Shadrapar. <laughs> and then I could smell the swamp when they go out to the prison. He's so good at evoking a sense of place, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The interesting observation that it's standalone, I'm aware that it's published by Head of Zeus and his other works are published by Pam Macmillan and Tor. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody here in terms of what they're reading or anything else. And I'm not going to divulge something that's some trade secret of Adrian's, but it does fit as a perspective on or at least you know when i read it i felt that it was it fitted with the perspective on what happened on earth in the children of time series because the children of time series is all set in in deep space and we know that something happened that broke down earth's technology and so suddenly all of earth's tech just kind of broke and there is something in cage of souls that kind of makes you think maybe that's what happened on earth and maybe this is future earth i don't know i don't know if you found that uh, yeah i did think it was set in a future earth but it hadn't occurred to me that there could be a connection with children of time oh that's a really interesting idea though it's interesting as well because it's totally different style as you say i mean the the writing is very different i got a bit of Joseph Conrad out of it, really, you know, the kind of heart of darkness with the sort of the, the heat on the rivers and what have you. That was something that uh, that I felt was was sort of there. But yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the descriptive element is is fantastic. I was reading it and the heat really did get to me because I was reading it in Singapore when I was out there in I think it was November last year. And um, yeah, it was incredibly hot out there. <laughs> so it felt like, well, you know, this is this is what it's like, you know. So, uh, so yes, and that was interesting. Was there any particular qualities of it that, um, other than those, I mean, were any particular characters that grabbed you? I mean, all of them really. <laughs> um, he's he's very good at character. I mean, he's he's just very good at everything. <laughs> I really, I don't think I could pick out one particular favorite. I just enjoyed. I enjoyed what each character brought to the story. Obviously, um, you get the most of Stefan because the story's told from his point of view. But I felt like all the other characters were really well rounded and very interesting on their own, which can be quite hard to do in a first person narrative. Yeah, and I think as well the fact that you've got this sort of, you know, this evolving situation. I mean, obviously there's there's a little bit of contrivance in that he's got a locked setting. He's in a specific space for the majority of the novel, and I'm not, not giving anything away here. So they're in a specific space, so you can explore that specific space and and really, you know, sort of breathe life into that specific space, which is quite a nice technique to, to use to, to control the environment in that way. And when that happens, when you've you've got that, you can kind of, as I say, go into depth, but then 
he just does all these other things. You know, we we have all these other places revealed, and then everything kind of leaps out, and and we go into all these 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 other spaces, and then there's all this revelation of what happened before, and all the you know, it's very deceptively complex as a novel in that it comes across as quite the initial premise is quite narrow, and it comes across as quite quite a bit larger. Uh, as things move forward, so yeah, I, I I loved it. I thought it was thought it was great. You do follow the perspective character a little bit, you know, in terms of his progress through the prison, you know, from from his starting point. But then the fact that some of the others, and I, I'm trying so hard not to give anything away, but some of the others, they, they he flirts with archetypes and he flirts with stereotypes. That's one of the things I felt from this novel. He flirts with them in such a way as you think. Enough to make you think they're going to go a particular way, and then they don't. I like that. I like it when people do that. That keeps the narrative fresh. So even though there's things in it that might be recognisable, he takes them in a different direction from what you're used to. Cage of Souls is, is published by Head of Zeus, um, which is a bit different for Adrian because most of his stuff is Pam McMillan and Tor, but it's certainly no less gorgeous. And that's not to, you know, to criticise Head of Zeus at all. I've got a beautiful green hardback here, which is a, a lovely treatment of, uh, of the book. Yeah, and it was certainly it was nominated for an array of different awards as well over this last year. I loved Children of Time. and Some people in my um, Oxford writing group enjoy it about a quarter of the way through Children of Ruin. And it's uh, fascinating. Same, same scenario, but uh, same sort of setting, but different enough to... Uh, Maybe you want to keep reading. It's one of these books that I can't wait to get back to. So, uh, yeah, great stuff. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed uh, the Children of Time series. I think they're fantastic. And obviously, he's got a, a third book in that series coming out soon. The interesting thing is that the ending of Children of Ruin, not going to spoil it, does kind of imply that it's kind of finishing off, which was was interesting. But when he said that there was going to be a third book, I thought uh, I thought that was great. Obviously, I'm interested to see what he comes up with. But with Cage of Souls, yes, it's available everywhere now. It was released late last year, if I remember rightly. You can find it on all good bookshops. And what we'll do is we'll provide some links when the episode's released so everybody can can go and find it. But yeah, certainly excellent book. Okay, I'm going to take us a little bit on a on a theme really here because the choice I've made is a book that has kind of been a companion to Cage of Souls when it was on the nomination list. So yeah, so A Memory of Empire by Arcady Martin is my choice and um it's a fantastic book and I I've got to say before I start going into the detail of it this was my favorite read of 2019. This was absolutely my favorite read of 2019. And it, it won the Hugo in 2020. So yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant book. And, and if you've not had a chance to read it, you've not heard of Arcady Martin, she's well worth taking a look at. And I believe the sequel is either imminent or is yeah, is on its way in terms of, of what she's doing. But it, it doesn't really need a sequel in that it is a fairly self-contained story. But um, there's certainly more to explore in that particular space fiction universe. So yeah, so here's a little bit about it. In A War of Lies, she seeks the truth. Ambassador Mahet Desmar travels to the Texaclanet, oh dear, I, I, I kind of killed myself here, didn't I? Texaclanet Nili Empire's interstellar capital, eager to take up her new post. Yet when she arrives, she discovers her predecessor was murdered, but no one will admit his death wasn't accidental and she might be next. Now Mahit must navigate the capital's enticing yet deadly halls of power to discover the dangerous truths. And while she hunts for the killer, Mahit must somehow prevent the rapacious empire from annexing her home, a small, fiercely independent mining station. As she sinks deeper into an alien culture that is all too seductive, Mahet engages in intrigues of her own, for she is hiding an extraordinary technological secret, one which might destroy her station and its way of life, or it might save them from annihilation. Yeah, you know, that last paragraph is kind of a real hooker for trying to get you in and sort of go, yeah, come read me, isn't it? You know, it's got that that kind of, oh, I'll give you the answer to this mystery. 
which is is really interesting. So yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. I really, really enjoyed the read. Was there something in particular that stood out to you about it? Funny you should ask that. Um, yeah, there, 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 there were a few things. Yeah, it very much reads as a kind of updated Asimov in that Kev and I talked a little bit about Asimov last week and some of the big themes that Asimov covered. And the interesting thing with this book is that one of the situations in Foundation, in one of the early novellas of the Foundation series, is that you've got this planet of scientists who are up against a kind of bullying conglomerate of different worlds who've just broken away from the Empire and are menacing the Foundation world of Terminus. And there is kind of a bit of an altercation and a byplay. And Asimov resolves that with a, a little bit of intelligent trickery and scholarly knowledge and mathematics and shrewdness wins the day. Now, to compare Arcady Martin, and I'm going to be a bit brutal in terms of making that comparison, Arcady Martin takes a very similar situation, but the way in which she resolves it is so much more complicated and so much more intriguing. There is absolutely a, a command of character here. The characters are excellent in terms of what they do. There is this wonderful piece of tech that it's uh, alluded to in the blurb, which is revealed pretty early on. It's revealed in the first couple of chapters, and it's taken away in that the main character, Mahit, is supposed to be coming to this world with a set of experience, a set of advice, and a, a kind of secret guide to assist her, and that is immediately removed from her very early on. And so her poise, her equilibrium, her ability is sort of shot through, so she's destabilized very early on in the book. And then she has to kind of scratch around. And then, you know, this tech is kind of also something that this empire wants, and so there's a kind of byplay there, and she doesn't know who to trust, and you've got lots of kind of Game of Thrones characters you know, emerging from the woodwork and, you know, and kind of offering her stuff where their objectives might ally or where they don't. And you genuinely don't know who she can trust up until the, you know, the final quarter of, of the book. And it kind of doesn't, you know, it's not shackled by Asimov in that regard. There's a little bit of Delaney that, you know, I kind of got a, a sense of. There's a little bit of Banks, you know, which is obviously is, is mentioned and, and, and suggested. There's a lot going on. It does resolve itself. You don't need to carry on to the next novel to, to find out what's going to happen next. But this little mining colony that Mahit comes from, they're still there. You know, the kind of truce is still quite fractious and not completely secure. So it could be that we go on another generation and we have another conflict and we might find something else out uh, that will happen. But it's, it's a really nice treatment of this. And there's some really interesting kind of setups as well at the beginnings and the ends of chapters. There are some really nice sort of throwaways to different material. The kind of little things that you can carry on reading the story and not read those, or you can read them and kind of soak up the lore and kind of feel like, you know, that you've learned more about and immersed yourself more in this world. So it's a nice sort of technique. I like that in it as well. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a fantastic book. And I read Cage of Souls in the same year as reading A Memory Called Empire. And, and I have to say, I'm afraid, just in my view, my tiny little little office world, that one is a king and the other is an ace. They are just, there's not that much between them. But um, for me, A Memory Called Empire was just that tiny bit, the more enthralling book of the two. So yeah, so I, I think it's fantastic. I have a copy of it on my Kindle. I've just not read it yet, but I might have to bump it up the list after. Well, I, you know, I mean, it's it's certainly worth taking a look at. And I think it'll either grab you because it's got a real kind of traditional science fiction throw in the in the first few chapters. So if that's, you know, you, you can hear the, you know what I mean? When you read a book and you kind of get the signals, you know, it's got that kind of traditional science fiction throw, that traditional kind of space opera throw to it. If that's your bag, if it's something that you can, you know, you go, yep, absolutely, that's what I want. You know, I'm, I'm in for, for an Ian Banks that's not an Ian Banks. 
then yeah, this is this has certainly got that quality to it uh, in terms of what's there. Sounds good. Okay, so that's my reading choice, and now we'll throw over to Kev. Kev, uh, what's your chosen book for this week? My novel is. If I said Shades of Grey, your mind is probably flipping over to some uh, sort of published piece of, quote, erotica, unquote. This shares a title, but it's a very different book. It's not erotic at all. It is, however, superb. It is Shades of Grey, The Road to High Saffron. It's by Jasper Ford. It's a fabulous piece. The only way I've been able to describe it is to say it's what Brave New World would have looked like had Monty Python actually uh, written it. So it's set in a sort of weirdly post-apocalyptic world, but one that's actually sort of quite pleasant. Everyone seems to have a certain level of colour perception, and there's a, a rigid social stratification. So the, the ultraviolets are the uh, absolute top, then the, the purples, the blues, and the greens, and then towards the lower end of the, the reds, and worst of all of the greys. There's a fairly rigid social structure, and it's quite quite heavily enforced, but there's all sorts of... The rules are really, really bizarre, but quite wonderfully bizarre. There's uh, uh, Spoons are largely illegal, so is the number 73. What else is there? The colour lime is a narcotic. There's uh, a great leap backwards that takes place every few years where they decide what elements of technology to get rid of. So the whole thing comes along with... Uh, uh, sort of everyone in their place ethos that's explored there and it's it's about how that is subvertive and, and how um the greys a relationship happens between a red and a gray which is not really allowed but it's a fascinating piece of work the one there is it's quite a complicated system it doesn't seem to make sense but in a very strange way it does everything hangs together and there's a very, very strong theme in there that you are more than your status. Society may give you a particular place, but you need to uh, find your own status. And even if society is very repressive, you can make your own movement there. The writing is highly, highly competent. Uh, the characters are quite strongly drawn. Uh, I find myself really, uh, really getting on with this. There were meant to be two sequels that they haven't turned up, but... Uh, it's uh, strongly recommended. Is it played for humour or, or sort of played for satire in terms of, of what's there? That's how it, it comes across in terms of the, the initial blurb. Or is it played straight? On the surface level, I think it's pretty straight. There's there's things like uh, the uh, main protagonist has been, he played a prank. And as, as a punishment, he's been sent off to a remote town where he has to do a chair survey make sure there's at least 1.8 chairs per person. This is some sort of a make-weight type job. That's made clear. But it's about subverting that and subverting the rules. There's a, So there's, there's humour there. It's not belly-laugh humour. It's more sort of quite satirical, anti-authoritarian, jibes at ridiculous uh, regulations. Uh, spoons are banned, but... Uh, not banned, but you can't, you're not allowed to make any more. So those that remain from whatever cataclysm happened in the past are treasured as heirlooms. But uh, someone works out that they can use sporks later on, which sort of changes things. And it's, it's looking at how people can wiggle around rigid regulations. It's, it's quite an anti-authoritarian sheen to it that's, that's done in quite a, a humorous manner. And do you think it has something to to kind of say? Because some of the best work that covers these kind of areas usually speaks to the modern context. Has it got something to say in relation to our society in terms of us being trapped in, I don't know, trapped in ritual or trapped in, you know, in doing things in a particular way? I think that's it. I mean, there's this scene in there where this great guru who uh, set down the rules a few centuries ago said, each child must have a glass of milk at 11 o'clock and a smack. And um, dutifully, they, they uh, feed their children milk, then smack them at 11 o'clock in the morning. And some dissident points out that, well, perhaps smack actually should read snack. So they, uh, they do um, change things so that children get a biscuit rather than a clout round the ear hole. So that's that's uh, pretty clever. So there is the, the theme in there is the society is one where everyone is in their place and there is a place for everybody. The theme of the novel is subverting that. And it's it's about 
to an extent breaking the rules none of the the likable people in the novel do anything that harms people they are uh you know doing things like using number 73 or uh using colors that aren't strictly allowed so yeah i, I really enjoyed this it has narrative feed it bizarrely starts halfway through the novel so you're wondering how am i going to get to that position uh, then carries on from there so it's, it's very well structured very well put together you're gradually trying to make sense of the world and seeing how it fits together and you do largely get i don't think i understood everything about the world whether that's me getting a bit befuddled or just before deliberately leaving things quite ambiguous i'm not sure but the whole thing does work the bits that you're not sure about do actually make sense when you come to look at the whole thing and I take it then, compared to last week when you were talking a little bit about Brave New World and, and remembering that this was a world that you wanted to live in, or at least, you know, there are, there are elements of this society that didn't sound too bad. Would you say the same for, for this particular version of, of society? Or is this um, a society that you'd probably choose to give a pass to? I'd probably choose Brave New World over this. It's like looking back at Victorian eras, and I think if you had lots of money, things wouldn't be too bad. If you were a servant, you'd be working 60, 70 hour weeks and being beaten by your employer for sneezing and, and that sort of thing. So it's a very hierarchical society. If you were in right at the top, you were ultraviolet or purple, you'd probably do okay. But I'm not the sort of person that could do what the protagonist in this book does. I couldn't break out of my uh, allotted colour. So I, I really think uh, I would prefer to live in the Brave New World society. It's interesting because it does also, the the colours do correspond to some of the colours that are used in the role-playing game Paranoia. And Paranoia definitely drew its inspiration from 1984 but it has a computer at the the apex, and so the computer is watching everybody and, and so on, which is, you know, a, a massive... And, and Paranoia has been a massive uh, role-playing phenomenon for, for decades and has been, you know, he's definitely played for laughs. It has a very, very different kind of atmosphere to it when you play it compared to other role-playing games. You definitely aren't in for a game of Dungeons & Dragons when you play Paranoia. It just strikes me that there's some similarities, you know, in terms of, of some of this, uh, which which could be quite interesting. I wonder if you ever played it. I haven't played Paranoia. It's, I, I shall put it on my uh, ever-increasing to-do list. I'll probably get around to it about the same time the sun turns into a lump of black coal. But, uh, yeah, it does sound good. I haven't had a... I haven't played RPGs for, for many years, but maybe a future LaveCon, we can have a look at that. Yeah, or, you know, as I say, we could find out if Jasper Ford played it. So if anybody knows if Jasper Ford played Paranoia and then wrote Shades of Grey, that'd be very interesting. He does have a website, and I think he, he sounds like the, the sort of author that would engage with his readers. So it may be worth uh, dropping him a line. I don't know. I may take that on. Okay, so that's Shades of Grey by Jasper Ford. It's actually, it was out in 2011 and uh, it's available in uh, all good all good bookshops and all bad bookshops, I'm sure as well. And we'll provide some links. It's published by Hodder. So we've a pretty stellar list of stuff today. It's certainly gone out very well uh, in terms of what's there. So hopefully if you're listening along, then one of the three books that we've we've talked about today that's probably uh, given you something that you can add to your own reading list and add to your bookshelf. Okay, that's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email chair at bsfa.co.uk with the subject heading Data Slate. Or alternatively, you can contact us through the Lave Radio email, info at laveradio.com. If you'd like to learn more about Shona Kinsella's novella, The Flame and the Flood, then you can find it on Amazon by clicking on the link on the show description or doing a quick search. It's available in paperback and ebook. Alternatively, you can head over to the publisher's website where they should be able to help you too. That's over at www.foxspirit.co.uk. So yeah, and if you'd like to read more about Shona's work elsewhere, then you can find her at www.shonakinsella.com and we'll put the link in the description of the show. If you'd like to learn more about Kevin's novel Lightmaker, you can find it on Amazon by clicking on the link in the show description as well, 
or doing a quick search on Amazon. And you can also find Kevin. Where's my flipping tea? He's over at Kevin Elliott, or one word, dot space. Okay, that's all for now. So see you next time, reader fans. Take care, and we're out. 